0: Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Today I want to continue a little series of signposts on Advent, a few reflections on that, and I want to read today from the Gospel of of Matthew chapter 2 and just the first 12 verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, in an earlier Advent signpost, we considered a wonderful painting of the angelic host announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. The artist Daniel Bono captured them in a moment of worship and praise to God. And from that image we explored the gospel in the words of a well-loved carol that kind of uh, inspires uh, the painting perhaps uh, called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The shepherds were of course not the only visitors that journeyed to Bethlehem to see the child born to Mary. For Matthew tells us that here that Magi came from the east. The importance of the visit of the Magi in the Christmas story is evident in that it was a subject of even the very earliest Christian art. This image, though quite primitively done, depicts their arrival. It was painted on the wall of the tomb of a woman called Priscilla in Rome sometime around 200 AD. The visit of the Magi has also been a popular feature of Christmas carols, the best known of which is We Three Kings of Orient Are. It's typical of a lot of carols in that it includes details that are not found in the biblical text, but that have nonetheless become part of the popular mythology that surrounds the Christmas story, even in the church. The truth is that we don't know how many Magi were there, The number three is assumed from the fact that three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh, were given to the family. And furthermore, the Bible never calls them kings. And they were not from the Orient, as we would understand that term today. The text tells us that they came from the East, but where exactly is that? Well, as Professor Kenneth Bailey points out, it rather depends on where you are standing. Uh, For Christians living in Israel... The east uh, would refer to the other side of the Jordan River. And so when Matthew was writing this, it would most likely have been understood as referring to the Jordanian deserts that connect the deserts of Arabia. So not the Far East, the Orient, uh, as they're often portrayed. However, despite a bad start, the carol uh, also uh, allows the gospel to weave through its verses. Everything we know about the Magi is found in Matthew chapter 2 and like many aspects of the Christmas story there's a lot in it that we probably miss because we think we already know the story so well. The common explanation for their arrival in Jerusalem rather than Bethlehem is that they took a wrong turn or that the star somehow disappeared and they lost their bearings in the desert. But I think the star actually deliberately led them to Bethlehem and it happened for a reason because this story reveals something of who Jesus is and what his message and ministry will be. Firstly, it tells us of the threat that Christ's kingship brings. It kind of takes a real brass neck to arrive at a palace and stand before a king seated on his throne and ask where his replacement is. But that's more or less what the Magi did surprisingly, Matthew tells us that Herod and all Jerusalem were disturbed at this. And preacher Tim Keller was right to call that one of the great understatements of the Bible. We know that Herod was an unusually violent ruler, uh, even by the standards of his time. He killed most of his own family members to ensure that his absolute power uh, went unchallenged. And so, true to character, of course, we'd later on in the story, when he realised that the Magi were not coming back to tell him where to find the child, he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every male child under the age of two. Population models suggest that there were probably around 30 children that age in the village at that time, but whether it was one child or 30, it was a horrific and devastating atrocity for the people of Bethlehem. However, as far as Herod was concerned, it was just a pragmatic necessity. Uh, Jesus would have been probably um, a year to two years old at the time uh, that the the soldiers went. It's a sad indictment of humanity that Matthew 2 could have been written yesterday. The world hasn't changed at all. The account of deception and fear, bloodshed, injustice, and homelessness is all too familiar. Great evil is abroad in our world. But that raises a question why is there evil in the world and where does it come from? In our politically charged society, those on the left uh, blame the rich and the powerful for the world's evils because they've made themselves rich by oppressing the poor. Those on the right say that actually it's the lazy, shiftless poor who are immoral and irresponsible who are to blame for the world's evils. As is so often the case, both views are wrong. The great Russian writer Solzhenitsyn hit the nail on the head when he said that the line that separates good and evil runs through every human heart. The problem of evil in the world isn't political, it's spiritual. And so the Bible teaches that evil lies within each and every person, rich or poor, powerful or oppressed. Evil lies in every human heart. We are all faced with choices to act for good or for evil every day. Herod's response to the newborn king is therefore our response. And if we had been in his shoes, we would most likely have acted no differently. Notice that the Magi asked about the king of the Jews and the response was to tell them where the Messiah, the Christ, would be born. The king that the Magi were looking for was the king of kings. And Herod knew full well that only one king could sit on the throne. The arrival of this king, therefore, was a threat to his rule. And the hidden truth here is that it is also a threat to ours. The cry of our hearts is that of the crowd before Pilate. We will not have this man to rule over us. The unfolding story told in the Bible shows us that the evil in the world stems from the self-centeredness, self-righteousness and self-absorption of every human heart. It's the idolatry of ourselves. We want to be God. As one writer puts it, each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. We do not want to serve God or our neighbour, we want them to serve us. In every heart then there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Each of us wants to be the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. In Romans 8 verses 7 to 8 the Apostle Paul writes that the natural state of our minds is enmity with God and that our minds don't submit to God's law as he says in Romans 3 10 to 11 there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks God and when we read a verse like that we we tend to think that it doesn't really apply to religious people like us because we are after all seeking God But Paul actually spends the first five chapters of Romans basically saying that religious people are as hostile to God as the irreligious are. They're just hostile in a different way. It's all too easy for religious people to seek God for what they can get out of him. in the past I've kind of talked about vampire Christians, people who want the benefits and blessings of the blood of Jesus but who do not want to live the life of self-sacrifice and self-giving love, the life of incarnating his life. Is it not true that all too often we seek not God but the love, help, strength, forgiveness, happiness etc that he can provide for us? We seek God not because he is God, not for who he is, but for what we can get out of him. When God turns out to be not at all like we want him to be or expect him to be, when he doesn't provide the things that we think he should, we are left disillusioned and so many abandon their pretense at faith or else they continue in lifeless, loveless and powerless religion. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans 6 to 8 There remains residual enmity in our hearts towards God, even in Paul's own heart he admits it. In Romans 7.15 he admits that he does what he doesn't want to do and does the thing that he doesn't want to do. One of the hidden truths of the Christmas story revealed here is that King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to even hatred of the claims of God on our lives. Why do we find it hard to pray? Why is it so hard to focus our lives on walking in the way of Jesus? Why, like Paul, do we do what we don't want to do? The answer to that is that there is still a little King Herod inside all of us. The daily struggle of disciples is always a struggle between our desire to be in charge of our own lives, which is the idolatry of the self, the most insidious idolatry of all and the call to surrender our lives to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the saving King. As the carol puts it, Born a king on Bethlehem plain, gold I bring to crown him again, King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. The most disturbing question for the human heart is the one the Magi ask, Where is the true King? Who is on the throne of our lives? Secondly, this part of the story, the arrival uh, of the Magi in Bethlehem, tells us of the weakness of Christ's kingdom. The Bible tells us that Jesus comes as king not once but twice. Firstly, he comes as a helpless baby king in Bethlehem. But when he comes again, finally, he will come in power and will end all evil, suffering and death. And you can read about that in the book of Revelation. The first time he comes, he comes not in strength, but in weakness. To a poor family in a small village in the middle of nowhere. He comes without the usual royal credentials. He comes lacking social status, wealth or political power. He spent the first few years of his life as an immigrant refugee, having escaped the violence of a homicidal tyrant, a displaced migrant in the foreign land of Egypt. It's interesting to note that when Joseph brought the family back out of Egypt, he settled in Nazareth, which was about as far away from the centre of royal power as you could get in Israel in those days. So Jesus grew up as a Nazarene a, in a, a despised place and people. In John one forty-six, when Nathaniel learns that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? In modern terms, Jesus was a poor immigrant refugee who was despised because of where he came from. Hardly royal material. And Nathaniel's reaction is quite understandable because it's human nature, isn't it? To despise people who come from the wrong places and have the wrong credentials. And the rise in racist rhetoric and violence against asylum seekers in the UK is testimony to that. As one writer notes, we are always trying to justify ourselves. We need desperately to feel superior to others. And everything about Jesus contradicts and opposes that impulse. No one from Nazareth could possibly be one of society's elite, certainly not royalty. And yet, this is how God works again and again. God brings his message of salvation not through the powerful nations of the ancient world, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians or the Romans, but through the Jews, the smallest, poorest, weakest. They weren't even properly a nation when he called them. He kills Goliath, not with a bigger giant, but with a shepherd boy who can't even find armour to fit and at whom the giant just laughs. God spoke to his prophet Elijah, not in the earthquake, wind and fire, but in the still small voice. In a culture and time when women were valued for their beauty and fertility, God chose an old woman, Sarah, and not the younger Hagar. He chose unattractive Leah and not the beauty Rachel. He chose infertile women like Rebecca and Hannah and Elizabeth and made them mothers to some of the most significant characters in the story of redemption. You see, God always chooses Nazareth over Jerusalem. He chooses the girl nobody wants and the boy that everyone else has forgotten. He rejects the wisdom of the world his ways are not our ways. And yet Jesus, at the climax of his life, ascended not to a throne, but at a cross. His crown, then, was not one of gold, but of thorns. He came not only as a king, but as the priest who would make the perfect sacrifice, one that could fully bear evil, suffering and death, the consequences of returning away from God to idolatry but the sacrifice was himself. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter for us, crucified, dead and buried, the perfect sacrifice. But because he was the perfect sacrifice, death could not defeat him and the grave could not hold him. And so he rose triumphant over sin and death and hell and lives evermore to reign, as the song puts it. He did all that so that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could live as he intended for us. And so that when he comes as king the second time, he can end all evil without ending us. That's the story that this carol tells. Frankincense for Jesus have I, God on earth yet priest on high, Prayer and praising all men raising, Worship the earth's reply. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, tells of his death in Calvary's gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Heaven sings out, Alleluia, Amen, the earth replies. Jesus has been declared King of Kings and religious or irreligious, he demands our total allegiance and loyalty. So it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done. It doesn't matter what dark secrets lie in our past or how badly we have screwed up. If we repent and come to God through Jesus, not only will God accept us and work in our lives, but he will also work through our lives to build his kingdom here on earth. But when we come to him, It must be in surrender to acknowledge that Jesus, and not us, not me, is the saving king. That he is the one who deserves to be on the throne of our lives. And so we come to acknowledge that he is the saving king and to pledge our allegiance to him. And sooner or later, all of us will have to answer the Magi's question. Where is the true king?